Awakening Reformation, where Reformation awakens now. My name is Grant, and joined with me is my beautiful wife, Erica, the Weaker Vessel. Hello, everyone. If you would like to get to know more about Awakening Reformation podcast, go to rebelalliancemedia.com. We have three other podcasts in our network, Fathers of the Faith for Covenant Kids, which comes out on Mondays. That is a podcast for kids and families that we record with our kids, and On Wednesdays, the Rebel Podcast comes out with P-Nate and Poots, so check them out. And then on Fridays, Ben Emery is putting out a podcast called Redeeming History. So go check it out. Subscribe to us on iTunes so you get all the new episodes. Also, go check our YouTube channel. The Eschatology 101 series is being released on there right now. And in the works is an Eschatology 102 series. Best thanks to all of our wonderful Patreons. So... All of you who have signed up for our Patreon and are helping us out financially, thank you so much. This is huge for us to be able to continue doing what we're doing. Another thing that we wanted to announce is that we are going to be able to go to an event in Manhattan in Times Square called Alive from New York. And it is a pro-life rally that Focus on the Family is putting on. They have speakers, music guests, and they will be doing a 4D ultrasound that is going to be projected on the huge Jumbotron screens in Times Square there. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go Facebook Live and we're going to talk to some people and we're going to hopefully show all you guys the exciting stuff that is happening on that day in Times Square. And our hope is to just encourage everyone who is pro-life and maybe sometimes just feels like they're the only one and that their message isn't going to ever progress or isn't ever going to make it out of the confines of your conservative bubble. Like here we are in the mecca of liberal ideologies and there's going to be this pro-life rally. Tons of people from all across America and other countries are going to come together and just be a presence and uh, a light in the middle of this dark city. So it's an encouragement, and we hope to encourage you and just everyone else who makes it out to the rally. Once again, if you can make it out to New York City for the rally itself, and you aren't some kind of creepy person, (laughs) we would love to help you out. Like, if you're going to just need a place to crash, we'll open up our home to you. It's not cheap in New York. It's not. But we'd love if... A Rebel Alliance Media was Listener. coming out for this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you just like live like a few hours away and you just can't make it and drive back the same day, you can come crash on our couch. Do it. So send us a message. Yep. On Facebook and we'll, we'll work that out. And we might have to do a background check on you first, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for all others who are not able to make it, check out our Facebook feed on that day between 2.30 and 4.30. And we'll be going live, maybe not for the whole two hours, but at least periodically within that time frame, Eastern time. So keep a close watch on our Facebook feed during that time and that day. And be praying for the event. Be praying for New York City. Like it. Share the live video. I mean, this is these are just ways that we can open up conversations and avenues of discussion on social media. So 
And you can tag Rebel Alliance Media in the live video if you have a heated debate that started. Uh, <laughs> tag at Nate and Colleen. <laughs> uh, at Ben Emery. At, I almost said Vanilla Knox. <laughs> at Chris the Poots. Poots. <laughs> the Poots. And they will have your back. That's right. They'll love to help you engage your uh, pro-choice friends. Yep, definitely. So I think that And is... we will too. Yeah, and we're there for you too. But I mean, like, we might not be able to because, you know, we'll be there and stuff. Right. Okay. I think that is all the announcements. Yep. Is that it? For now. We all have right. a lot of other things in the works, but yeah, we, we do. can't announce until they have come to fruition. Yeah. They need to develop a bit more. Yep. But we are starting a new series tonight, and we are going to start a series on the basics of covenant theology and why it's important. Yep. And this may be something completely unfamiliar to you. It was to us, but we found it incredibly important in our walk and in so many other ways Mm -hmm. in our Christian life that we're going to talk about on this episode. So we hope to shed the same light. Yes. So covenant theology is defined as an overview or a framework for understanding the overall structure of the Bible. So this is going to help us connect all of scripture, um, put it together, and understand what it's like sharing and teaching us. So essentially it's the lens by which you see and read the whole of scripture. Yep. And everyone has a lens. So it's whether it's a biblical one or not, and that's what we hope to show you is that covenant theology is the biblical lens, meaning mm-hmm. it is it the intended lens. Yeah, the intended lens, the lens God wants us to have mm-hmm. for how you see the Bible. So this is going to be several parts, and we're going to kind of break it down to an elementary format. This yeah. is not supposed to be scholarly. This is very much for the layman, the person who's listening at home, maybe just searched out podcasts on covenant theology or uh, the stay-at-home mom who just wants to understand how to read her Bible better. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is very much a very comprehensive, inclusive overview at covenant theology. But we are going to break it down into sections so that it's more easily digestible. Yeah, and there are certain topics within this doctrine that do just take a longer time to tease out. Mm-hmm. And and you'll see that as you listen through the series that certain little things within this just take a longer time to really, like Erica said, tease out and explain and cover all the bases. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to shortchange any one of these little topics. So that's why we're going to draw it out a little bit and make sure we break it down mm-hmm. as much as possible. Right. And there are several forms of covenant theology, too. Um, yeah. We are going to be discussing Presbyterian covenant theology, like the OG form. Yeah. This is Westminster pretty much yeah. type covenant theology. This is no new forms of it. Like we're gonna talk OG style, right? Yes. This will be pretty close to John Calvin's covenant theology that he, you know, developed and taught. And then from there the Presbyterians and Scotland and then Westminster Divines and Mm -hmm. they're they're in England and okay so yeah okay so now that we've defined kind of what covenant theology is it's like a framework that we use to 
understand scripture. Mm-hmm. We have three major frameworks. contrasting and primary frameworks that we can choose from. We have covenant theology. Yep. And we have dispensationalism, which mm-hmm. Ben Emery and I think Andrew Emery has written several blogs about. Yeah, Andrew Emery had a series of blogs on the history of dispensationalism. So those are on the website. And also you can buy it in ebook form for I think a dollar. Okay. So we have uh covenant theology, dispensationalism, and then new covenant theology. Yeah. Which is not to be confused with OG covenant theology. Yeah. And I'll even add a add a fourth the new covenant theology and even this fourth one, the the Reformed Baptist um federal covenant theology. Um there's not a lot of people that hold to those. But I think it's worth mentioning, mentioning as we go through this. Just we'll say I'll, I'll just throw in some comments like what, well, and and they would see it like okay. this or something. So we'll throw that in there. Okay. But. So those are like the four main. I'm sure there's as many varieties of frameworks as you could possibly come up with. Every cult has their own framework. <laughs> so well, and even different shades within. Yeah, exactly. Within there, but we're gonna talk sometimes as general as possible, and there's just some things we have to break down. So. Yes. Okay. So the major distinctions or divisions, the topics that these frameworks would all disagree on amongst themselves would be the role of Israel and the church. Yep. uh, Or, you know, Old Testament, national, ethnic Israel, and the new covenant church. And then the law and the abiding validity of the law, the Mosaic law. Yep. And also how God slay, uh, how God saves or relates to his people throughout mm-hmm. time, throughout all of history. And each one of these, dispensationalism, covenant theology, new covenant theology, Baptist covenant theology, they're all going to have various explanations for these particular uh, topics. Right. So let's start with dispensationalism. Where shall we begin? <laughs> dispensationalism is the... I think by far the largest, most accepted yeah. framework in Today. America. Yeah. Yeah. In America. North America, probably. If you are, how are we going to jump into this? I don't know. So this is what we grew up in. We grew up. This is what everyone grows up in, unless you're a Catholic <laughs> or, or well, Lutheran yeah. or, or Reformed. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. But if you were raised Baptist, uh, like mainline Baptist, Pentecostal, non-denominational, Assemblies of God, Calvary Chapel. I mean, you name it. A lot of the um, non-denominational churches. Mm-hmm. If you grew up with any sort of emphasis on end time stuff and Armageddon and prophecy. rapture and prophecy and any of that, you grew up in a dispensational church. So dispensationalism um, was started by a guy named Darby. Yes. In the 1830s. And it stemmed from a group that he had with several other men who mm-hmm. formed other cults later on in their life. But this group was called... The Plymouth Brethren. And the Plymouth Brethren came up with all kinds of new ideas about scripture. They were all tired of the Church of England. Mm-hmm. They broke off, made this little powwow, and came up with all these crazy ideas. 
Um, they literally called their ideas new wine or new revelations from God, yep. which is terrifying yeah. <laughs> and crazy. Um, and some of these new ideas became so pervasive that they took off like wildfire and we still hold to them in the American broader evangelical church. So what, what Darby did was he rejected the the terminology of covenant theology and God dealing with humanity by covenants. And he said that it was God dealing with humanity by dispensations. And so... Or the dispensing of different time allotments. Right. So I think primarily he held to seven different dispensations throughout scripture from beginning to end. Yeah. And so in each one of these sections of history... Dispensations. Dispensations. Just think of it as... I don't know, pieces of a pie, like each piece of the pie is a dispensation of a a period of history. And, you know, the whole pie is all of history. Mm -hmm. And And each one of those, God governs mankind and creation differently. Yes, differently. Distinct and differently. And one of the features of this, too, is that there's no continuity. There is no... No, they stress the discontinuity Right, there's no connection throughout all of it. Yeah, they stress the discontinuity. They stress that there is a very distinct separation of each one of these dispensations. So how God governed and related to Adam is very much different than how he governed and related to Abraham, how he governed and related to the Apostle Paul. And this is very distinct. Yep. Ne'er the two shall meet. Exactly. Ne'er the seven shall meet. That's right. Um, They see also a very sharp distinction between the national ethnic Israel of the Old Testament and the church or the elect bride of Christ of the New Testament. Yeah, they believe in two peoples of God. They believe. Yep, two brides. So God is so Jesus, God Jesus, God has a bride and Jesus has a bride. I guess. <laughs> and or he's a polygamist. Anyway, there's two peoples of God. They legit, I mean, admit that we're not we're not calling something that they don't admit. Yeah. Um, two peoples of God. One is the nation of Israel, the people ethnic, national Israel, and then the other is the church. Mm-hmm. His people out of all the rest of the nations, the Gentiles. And there is a little bit of discrepancy here because they will admit that there were Gentiles that were part of ethnic Israel. Like there were Gentiles that were saved in the Old Testament. Even though they're not Jewish, they would still consider them Israel. Mm -hmm. And then in the New Testament, they would state that though there are Jews that are saved and part of the New Testament church, Mm -hmm. by and large... (laughs) They're two separate beings. Yeah. And it it is very inconsistent. Yeah. And the Mosaic Law even, I mean, it gave instructions on how to include a non-Jewish person mm-hmm. into the assembly, into the ecclesia, the church, the people there. And then the New Testament church, I mean, the first 10, 20, 30,000 believers are all Jewish. In Jerusalem, the hordes and hordes of people being saved because of the apostles preaching and teaching were all Jews from Jerusalem. So 
they also wrote the New Testament. So the sharp distinction that they like to make is that it's not very logical when you think about how the New Testament church was formed and Mm -hmm. who its earliest converts were, who the authors of the New Testament scriptures are. Jewish between Paul and Peter alone, we have Mm-hmm. Basic. I mean, John, and we've basically right. all Jewish men yeah. that wrote scripture that the dispensationals would say are separate from the church. Yeah, those, those are God's rejected people right now. Right, because they were under punishment. Yeah, from crucifying the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And for sure, God judged his nation. And he this judged, is just where biblical eschatology comes into play, yeah, too. <laughs> he judged the nation of Israel for crucifying his Messiah. Yes. Which but, is what happened in 70 AD, why the temple was destroyed, why mm-hmm. the Christians were told to flee from Jerusalem, and a lot of the Jews were punished, were yeah. killed, were yeah. slaughtered for crucifying the Messiah. Yeah. But the sharp, yeah, like Erica said, though, these sharp distinctions between Israel, like, Israelites, Jews, and Gentiles is just not there. It's just, there's not a clear cut and dry distinction. Yeah, and in Romans 11, Paul even teaches us that God didn't plant a whole new olive tree, mm-hmm. right? He cut branches off, judged them. He's going to judge the nation and remove their sole purpose. God had a purpose for only one nation, and he's expanding it. He's adding new branches, which mm-hmm. is all the rest of the nations. Now, all the nations are his vehicle to bring good news to the world, which is the Great Commission. So another way of explaining that would be when God made a covenant with Abraham. Once mm-hmm. again, God relates to his people through covenants. When God made a covenant with Abraham and promised him to make a great nation out of him. Yeah, he's going to bless all the nations through him. And that was always the plan. Yep. Throughout all, quote unquote, dispensations, yeah. which are made up. But throughout all <laughs> of history, that was always God's plan to bring about the fullness of his kingdom in all nations through all nations not just one in the old testament he did work primarily with the jews and ethnic israel right he did add gentiles throughout we have rahab we have nineveh we have other examples yeah we have plenty other examples throughout scripture but primarily through the jews Mm-hmm. Jesus had to be born from Jewish blood. Yeah. He had to be born from King David. That was prophesied. So once Jesus was born and he lived a perfect life, made atonement for sin by dying on the cross, rising again, and is now ascended into heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit down mm-hmm. on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. We see the Spirit being poured out on all nations right. and giving the ability to Christians, Jewish men, the ability to speak to all other nations in their native tongues, because that was the plan all along yep. to go for the gospel to go forth to all nations. Exactly. Instead of one nation going out and sharing God's word, because God gave, you know, Paul talks about this in Romans, that the oracles of God were given to Israel. So they did have a benefit. Mm-hmm. But now it's given to all nations to go out, just like you said. Yep. And so all, we don't see a removal of Israel. We just see an addition. And again, this is so clear in Romans 11 that the olive tree is the same olive tree. Mm-hmm. Some branches were cut off and others were grafted in. Yeah, they, some Jews fell away because they didn't recognize Jesus as the yeah. Messiah. They were cut off from God's covenant family. Right. And then the Gentiles were brought in. Mm-hmm. So not every Gentile and not every Jew 
is part of God's family. That's true. Right. But um, this distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles is clearly not a biblical one found in Scripture. Not if you're being consistent. In Galatians 3, 28, mm-hmm. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So I I have a really hard time yeah. when they are saying, no, 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 no. There's two different. When Paul said <laughs> there is no Jew nor Gentile, he didn't really mean that. He didn't really mean there was no distinction. Silly Paul. Silly Paul. <laughs> No, clearly there is just like a distinction between their biology. That's mm-hmm. not what he's saying. He's saying as far as their belonging to the body of Christ, there's now no distinction. Your circumcision doesn't save you. Exactly. And in Romans, Paul even tells them that you Jews who are trusting in your outward performance, your external rituals like circumcision, it means nothing. Your your circumcision means nothing if you don't have faith in Jesus. Or he says that a true Jew is one who is circumcised inwardly. Mm-hmm. We're still called Jews. He expands the use of the word Jew and Israel to mean all those who have faith in the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it was in the Old Testament with Ruth and all these other people that if they had faith in the promises of God which is what the gospel has been throughout all of time, having faith in the God- promises of God, they were called a Jew, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't, sure, they didn't have DNA biological Judas from Abraham, but if you were circumcised and you came into the people of God and you trusted God and you followed Yahweh and all that, you were called a Jew. And we're going to get into circumcision a little bit more in depth later on when we start talking about sacraments and implications of covenant theology. But it is important to note that even in Deuteronomy 10, that that has always been the purpose even of circumcision. Yeah, exactly. That the outward symbol of circumcision would lead them to the circumcision of their hearts. Yeah, that was not a new thing in... And, you know, Old Testament prophecy about the new covenant and then with Paul. He's drawing on the law. He's drawing on the Mosaic covenant, mm-hmm. which said you need to be circumcised in your hearts. Moses realized even then this ain't going to work just by doing rituals on the outside. Mm-hmm. Something needs to change in well, all Well, it's not that the signs weren't important. I mean, the signs no, but, yeah. were were their way of obeying what God had told them to do. Yeah. It was a symbol that they could teach their children, like, this is what this sign means. When you are circumcised, it's it means this. It mm-hmm. means that you're part of God's covenant people. This is a sign that should lead you towards repentance. It right. should lead you towards faith in the Messiah to come. Yeah. That your heart, the flesh of your heart would be cut away and you would be soft to what God is doing in your life. Yeah, exactly. And so... It was important, but mm-hmm. but it it was pointing to something greater. The sign always pointed to something yeah, greater. Of course. It was know? an object lesson for the people. So, in, you know, when you start talking about the Gentiles being grafted into the body of mm-hmm. Christ and that the Jews are not still currently God's quote-unquote chosen people or covenant people solely, but the Gentiles are as well. Yep. That it's um, multiplication. It's not a subtraction. Right. right. Or replacement. <laughs> yeah. And and that's what we're called, right? We're called um, replacement, replacement theology. 
replacement theologians. Yeah. And that's a terrible term because that's not what we believe at all. We don't mm-hmm. believe that the Gentiles replaced Israel. Right. We believe that the faithful Jews that are still faithful Jews that still believe in the Messiah, mm-hmm. they believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Yep. And there are thousands of Jews that, I mean, I am one of them. Right. I'm like 40% Jewish. <laughs> so I'm not saying that the Jewish people have been cut off. I'm saying that the faithful Jews who've remained faithful right, to their exactly. covenant God now have Gentile brothers and sisters that have been brought in as well. And our family has expanded. Exactly. It's really good. But that's what Paul's talking about in Romans is that it it's a it's still about faith. The faithless ones were the ones who died in the desert. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Those were the branches cut off were the faithless ones. Yeah. It's not like there were, you know, faithful Jews and God's like, sorry, but most of you are jacked up, so I'm cutting you off. Right. Well, when you look at the hall of faith, yeah. you can see that Mostly all Jew. of them well yeah, and all of them were saved how? By faith. faith. Yeah. By faith. It was never by their works. Right. Um, God did require of obedience of them. Still does. But, and yeah, and he still requires obedience of his church today. Mm-hmm. But that's not what saves us. Yeah, exactly. It is evidence that he has saved us and worked in us, but it's always been by faith in the Messiah either to come or the Messiah that has come. Exactly. That we are saved and brought into right standing with God. Mm-hmm. So there's not two peoples of God. One. One people of God. Always one. (laughs) The Jews and the Gentiles of the Old Testament, the Jews and the Gentiles of the New Testament. All of them saved by faith. Mm -hmm. All of them always one person, one bride of Christ. Yep. And again, go look at Romans 3, Romans 4, Galatians 3. All the book of Hebrews. If you don't believe me, it was always of faith. Yeah. Um, So another massive distinction in dispensational and new covenant theology, where new covenant theology tends to be the mixing of covenant theology and dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. They kind of like to pick and choose which they, which doctrine they like the yeah, best and kind of right. like form their own unique, it's like a Neapolitan. All right, pretty much. Um, but one of the distinctions is what to do with the Mosaic law. Exactly. In particular. Yeah. And new covenant theology, as I understand it, want to, keep the biblical language of covenant like erica was saying dispensationalism not in the bible it's a made-up word i think paul says at one time and it's not even referring to sections of history no um but covenants is the davidic covenant abrahamic covenant this is all over the bible the idea of covenant and so they want to keep biblical language and they want to call themselves new covenant theologians but what they do though is they're essentially dispensational and in that when jesus said I have fulfilled everything. That means that now it's it's balled up and tossed in the trash. It's no more. And now in the new covenant, which is what Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied about, and Jesus said he established the Lord's Supper. He mm-hmm. talked about establishing a new covenant. It's a new covenant in my blood. Right. That all we follow now is basically New Testament. In a sense, they're Marcion, which is a heresy that the church uh, condemned. Mm-hmm. In the in early church history, and what they do is they they say we just follow the law of Christ now, and so the Spirit lives in me, and as I worship Jesus and live my Christian life, the Spirit is just going to work in me and make me holy mm-hmm. and make me this awesome Christian. Now there are plenty of commands in the New Testament; most of them are found in the 
Old Testament and... And are reiterated from the Old Testament. Right. And so that's where I was getting at is a lot of them will say, well, we follow the law of Christ. I say, well, what's the law of Christ? And they say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm like, that's Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. And then love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus. Mm -hmm. But they just stick to New Testament and they do away with, they create discontinuity with the Old Testament. So... I mean, we reject this because Paul said all scriptures God breathed and profitable for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that we would become whole. Right. And at that time, Paul talking about all scripture was the Old Testament. And in 1 Corinthians 10, we're told to read the Old Testament. They are our example. Paul led people in Rome to Christ by using the scriptures, by using the Old Testament. I mean, all throughout, that's what he used. That was the scripture he used. But in Romans 7, 7, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? So to the Mm -hmm. new covenant, is the law sinful then? If it's done away with, if Jesus fulfilled it, is the law sinful? Paul's asking you this question. He says, certainly not. Yeah. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So we need it. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. (laughs) Right. He's saying, like, I wouldn't even know what was wrong or right if the law didn't tell me. Yeah. Paul's saying, I need the Decalogue. I need the Ten Commandments. Yeah. I need that. So this is where, uh, like, the three uses of the law... Yeah. I know that sometimes Presbyterians get knocked around for believing in the uses of three uses of the law. Right. And then in the uh, types of law, the civil, ceremonial, mm-hmm. and the moral law. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Well, New Covenant theologians just say there's no distinctions. It's all mixed. You can never separate it like that. The law is the law, period. Right. The law is just one uni- big unified thing. And I can almost just agree. I'm like, okay, fine. Sure, it's all one law. It's all what God has required man to do, and it's all exactly what God wants redeemed man to be like. So mm-hmm. uh, so whatever. If you don't want to have these distinctions, fine. But they say there's no distinctions. Uh, there's no these three different categories in the law. Um, and, and Jesus fulfilled it, and fulfilled just means it's gone now. They don't seem to... Really Which is a really in. interesting idea. Like, where do we get this concept of, like, fulfilled? If you owe a debt and someone fulfills that debt for you, mm-hmm. what was purchased doesn't go away. Right. It's just now rightfully yours. Yeah, it's a good point. Another verse in Romans, I can't think of the chapter. It's 10 or 11. And it says that Christ is the end of the law. Mm-hmm. And they point that out, too. See, he's the end of it. It's done. But it, it doesn't mean the end of, um, like, the end of the dock. The end what, of all morals. Well, it's like the, like the end. Like, there's no more now. Yeah. This is what uh, Doug Wilson explained this pretty well. Better than I'm about to. But the Greek word has the root from telos. It's purpose, meaning. Christ mm-hmm. is the purpose of the law. And so, Christ now gives us the, uh, the purpose of the law. Now, we can actually fulfill it. Because now the Spirit lives within us and renews us and gives us a power, you know, we enables us. never had before, yeah. enables us to actually follow it. And so the purpose, which is for us to live as a redeemed people, free from sin and in newness of life, 
we can actually do that now because of what's got what God has done now because of the resurrection mm-hmm. and all this stuff. I think one of the one of the major themes that you will see when we discuss the differences between dispensationalism, covenant theology, and new covenant theology is that covenant theology will really see the Old Testament as the gospel in shadow form. Mm-hmm. And then the New Testament, like we said, in full technicolor. Right. We yeah. see everything in bold colors just like gleaming off of the screen, off the pages for us. Yeah. And just because the Old Testament was shadows, glimpses here and there of what God was going to do, but it wasn't uh, complete yet, doesn't mean we throw it away. Mm-hmm. Because in a lot of ways, the shadows help us to really understand and appreciate the full color and the splendor of the new covenant. Yeah, God's purposes have always been like a sunrise, just slowly shedding more and more light. And again, this is where it goes into our eschatology, which is post-millennialism, where God's purposes and mission is always growing and expanding and becoming bigger, brighter, in more color, more people, more nations. You know what I mean? It's always building and getting bigger and bigger. It's always progressing. It's always progressing. It's a pretty good way to put it. Whereas theirs, there's just discontinuity. It's bipolar. I don't even know. Yeah, it's just it's discontinuous and it's a new thing. It's like a, a billboard. There's one you know thing up there. God is like this mm-hmm. right now. And then a guy goes up there, rips it down, and then there's a new one. Right. Basically. And this gets into some character distinctions in a disp- between the dispensational God of the Bible and mm-hmm. the covenant theology's God of the Bible. The fact that God doesn't change, that he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Right. He, he never changes. The dispensational community hangs their hat on the fact that God does change his mind and he does relate to people differently throughout time. He can change his mind. He can change his mm-hmm. tactics. He can change. I mean, that's what he does. One method of saving people or communicating with people didn't really work out as great as he thought it, right. it might. So he's going to try a different way. And then each different dispensation was a different trial and error of God until he finally got it right in Jesus. Yeah, it really makes you question God's wisdom. Like, why did you ever do it that way with Adam if it just failed so quickly? Why did you ever do it that way with Noah? Why did you ever do it that way with Abraham well, it and out with his Moses? sovereignty, right? Because clearly God isn't sovereign control. enough to control the outcome of yeah. whatever his uh, plan is. intention was. Yeah. But also just his intelligence. Like, did, right. did God not know that mankind was absolutely ridiculously (laughs) stupid and wouldn't be able to like fully obey right i mean did god was that like a surprise to him when adam fell and you know abraham slept with hagar and like all these different crazy things that happened like was god like dang it didn't count on that right yeah instead of god slowly you know painting this masterpiece a stroke at a time it's chaos every you know millennia or something Mm-hmm. Of his plan being thwarted, frustrated, and jacked up by us sinners. Yeah, the God of dispensational theology and New Covenant theology is very much reactive as opposed to proactive, 
which is how the covenant theologian would view God. He's a proactive God. He is mm-hmm. the one that initiates relationship with his people, and he never fails in any of his will or doing. Yeah. Now that we've kind of broken down a little bit some of the distinctives of these different frameworks, we yeah. hope that you would see that covenant theology is a better theology. It makes way more biblical sense, and mm-hmm. it connects all the dots of scripture. We have no problem passages. Nope. Because we don't have any stray dots in this dispensation and stray dots in that one. Right. All of our dots connect throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of the Bible, and it's pointing us to Jesus. Yeah, exactly. And the inevitable outcome, which is the expansion and the fruition of his kingdom. Yeah, exactly. So. Well put, then. What then does covenant theology change? Why is this important? I think one of the most important things that it changes is it changes your hermeneutic. And hermeneutics is just a fancy word for how you view and study the Bible. How you interpret scripture. Yeah, how you interpret what the Bible is telling you. And when you're reading it with those dispensational lenses, you're going to be trying to figure out which dispensation, what is talking about How many weeks is this in Daniel? And what is this spoke of this wheel over here? And it just gets crazy. You're going to have a bunch of big charts and trying to figure it all out, and it's going to drive you nuts, and you're going to miss the glory of God orchestrating all of history to his glorious and beautiful ends. And again, if if we hold to sola scriptura, right, scripture alone, then you have to take it from Genesis to Revelation and look at it as a whole. You don't cut off pieces of it and say, okay, well, that's that piece that doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. It, it all matters. And like Erica brought up Hebrews 11, we're being told it all mattered. Mm-hmm. They all had faith along the way, and this was all part of God's plan up until our day today. So it all matters. Mm-hmm. So it deeply affects your hermeneutics as you read it. And this is why we have tons of people who never read the Old Testament. This is one of the effects of dispensationalism in our church today. I knew that Paul talked about circumcision of the heart in Romans growing up because that's what you're supposed to read, New Testament. That's all that matters. I didn't know that Moses talked about it several times Mm -hmm. in Deuteronomy way back then. Yep. Your view of the Bible is truncated. It's cut off at the legs. Well, because essentially it becomes this insane formula that you have to learn to Mm -hmm. work within. Yeah. And when it comes to the prophets and Revelation and parts of even the Gospels, mm-hmm. and I think even, is it First Thessalonians, where it talks mm-hmm. about the end times? Yeah, and Second like, Thessalonians. It gets to be insane, and you just feel completely inadequate to understand it. So you just ignore those passages, and you just hope that the little bit you know is good enough. <laughs> And this Just is I'm, hope I'm skating by here. <laughs> and this is what I'm talking about. Like, the, there's no problem passages yeah. when you have correct theology. All of it's understand. If you can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. you can understand eschatology. Yeah. Because proper postmillennial eschatology is just as simple to understand as the gospel. Yeah. If you can understand creation, the creation narrative, you can understand revelation. Yep. If you have a proper eschatology, yeah. it, you don't have to be insanely intelligent. Right. You don't have to have a PhD in physics to understand eschatology. You just need to know a little bit of covenant theology. You just got to know your Bible. 
And if you're having a hard time, but you'd really love to understand eschatology, proper eschatology, eschatology meaning the study of end times, the study mm-hmm. of end things, you need to go find our Eschatology 101 series on YouTube. Boom. Shameless plug. It won't be difficult for you. Nope. No excuses. <laughs> so. Yeah. Another thing that I think uh, covenant theology changes mm-hmm. is obviously our view of the sacraments. We're right. going to get into this a little bit. This is not the only implication of covenant theology. This is where we're going to have a little bit of disagreement with maybe some of the other rebels and perhaps even some in like the reform circle. But covenant theology, if taken to its logical end, does Mm -hmm. change how you view the sacraments, meaning baptism and the Lord's Supper. Right. And so for the Lord's Supper, just quickly, you know, growing up, the Lord's Supper was always just a memorial of Jesus dying on the cross. Mm -hmm. And it certainly represents that. Jesus' body and blood is certainly represented in the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. But growing up, because I was dispensational in the Old Testament, it doesn't really apply anymore. It's not really part of our focus. Mm -hmm. I never saw or was never taught how the Lord's Supper and Jesus being the bread of life was connected to the manna given to the Israelites in the wilderness and and Passover and all that's tied up into the Passover, even though Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at a Passover meal mm-hmm. and that he's called our Passover lamb, all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But I was never given that full understanding growing up. It was just memorial. So, yeah, it changed your it changes your view of sacraments when you see that sacraments are a part of every covenant mm-hmm. and and that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant now connects with all these different stories and it connects with the history of God's people throughout thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Also, baptism w- with <laughs> baptism in covenant theology, because of what Paul teaches us in Colossians 2, is that circumcision and baptism are connected and that baptism has replaced circumcision. And so... All of the imagery and the circumcision of the heart, which was a shadow of the regeneration of our heart that was to come, and now baptism, the the washing of the Holy Spirit and regenerating us like Titus 3, 5 talks about, those are connected. The newness of your heart is connected. Mm -hmm. And the ritual, the actual sacrament, had different symbolism in it. It had, you know, it was, it had different shadows. The blood shed by a firstborn son obviously has some clear symbology of Jesus being a firstborn son who shed blood to make us clean and to cleanse our hearts. And then baptism now is a symbol of the Holy Spirit being sent to us to cleanse our hearts and to make us new. But we see that those are connected. And so that changes your view of the sacraments too. It's Mm -hmm. not just uh, if you're saved and you believe then you need to be baptized out of obedience. And then that's it. Right. So another thing that is a distinct feature of covenant theology is that it changes your eschatology. Being only focused on the New Testament, you read end times things or end of the world things as all future. And that's what dispensationalism teaches you to do, is to see everything as future, to see the entire book of Revelation as future. And some of you right now be might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? (laughs) But 
I remember seeing that what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, about the, quote, end of the age, is about the destruction of Jerusalem, and that's some of the stuff that Isaiah talks about in his prophecy that I was told was about future, end end of the, the world, end of history. So, Isaiah was talking about the end of history, and so Jesus must be too, but it's clear from Matthew 24 that Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And so Isaiah is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, not the end of the end of history. Mm-hmm. And so your eschatology changes once you realize the continuity of the Bible, mm-hmm. not the discontinuity. Well, this is where going back to hermeneutics or how you interpret scripture, if you have a proper covenant lens, mm-hmm. we would say that the cloudy passages, the hard to understand passages in scripture should be interpreted by scriptures that are clear. By a scripture that we understand, we then interpret the hard-to-understand scripture. So, especially when it comes to eschatology, that is incredibly helpful. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's one of the instances there, is that Matthew 24 is pretty clear. The disciples are asking Jesus, what's going to happen to the temple? Mm -hmm. Isn't it wonderful? And it's just going to be here forever. And Jesus says it's going to fall. The imagery he uses is taken from Isaiah. So if uh, optimistic eschatology, mm-hmm. whether it's optimistic amillennialism, postmillennialism, is the proper way to view the end of things, the end of time as we would call it or whatever, end time events, mm-hmm. um, if that's the right way of viewing it, then the dispensational the large portions of New Covenant theology, mm-hmm. Baptist Covenant theology is more pessimistic. Right. Um, they do not see the increase of God's kingdom, of Christ's kingdom, the flourishing mm-hmm. of Christ's kingdom. The, the how would I want to say this? They just see that persecution will increase. They see that troubles for the church are just going to increase. It's not ever going to get any better. People are going to become increasingly more wicked. Right. Um, the church is going to be persecuted and ultimately almost snuffed out completely mm-hmm. with just the faithful few remaining. Yeah. So how does that then affect our missiology? Yeah, exactly. So then when Jesus gives you the Great Commission, go out into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, that becomes a complete frustration. If your outlook on history is just that it's going to get worse and worse and that everything is just going to be incredibly difficult for you and more so as time goes on. So basically, the more faithful you are, the more persecuted you'll be. And we were told we're going to face tribulation. Jesus yeah. said they hated me, so they're going to hate you. And count it all joy count when it that all... happens. Yeah. And so it's not like, you know, our heads up in the clouds and we don't realize that bad things are going on. But who would go to work in the morning without believing that they are going to bring about some type of increase. Yeah. Like, you don't go to work in the morning and think, I'm going to work hard all day and be completely faithful and in the end end up owing the government more than (laughs) what I actually earned today. Yeah. No one would go to work. And it's kind of ridiculous anyway to really believe that things are going to get worse and worse when throughout the last 2,000 years of history, the number of Christians on earth has just grown. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are billions now. 
Yeah, the fame of Jesus has just been spread like wildfire, wildfire, mm-hmm. and millions upon millions of people have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their savior. That's a far cry from hunkering down and just waiting for everything to implode. Right. And again, covenant theology gives you this framework of progression where, again, like I said, like a sunrise, we just see more and more light as time goes on in each covenant. It's like God's unlocking a wider lens Mm -hmm. of his redemptive purposes. And then obviously with Jesus and the resurrection and Pentecost, the, you know, the spigot is opened up wide. So it even makes sense more that your eschatology reflect God's working in history, that things would get better, bigger, would spread, not dwindle and decline and be frustrated. And Well, that's where the dispensational theology comes in, though, because mm-hmm. he's failed at all his other dispensations. Yeah, right, so, so why not this one, too? Yeah. So why does Jesus think we'd ever we disciple the nations? We have to do away with all of this and start a new dispensation, which is the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. Anyway, we can get into ecclesiology. We'll get, or we can get into eschatology more later. And we're yeah. going to delve into some of these things a little bit deeper mm-hmm. later on, more in depth, give you more scriptural backing for all of these ideas and principles. This is just a brief overview of why covenant theology really does make so much difference. Yeah. We've got two more and we're kind of short on time. So we're kind of breeze okay. through them. Um, ecclesiology. Go. So when you believe in covenant theology, you get a good understanding of the visible and invisible church, or if you prefer historical versus eschatological church, and you can do church discipline. You understand passages where people who are part of the church are disciplined and cut off and lose the you know spiritual blessings that they're given, like mm-hmm. Hebrews talks about. If you have a good covenant theology where there's the covenant people of God, and within that are those who are elect, you can understand that. But with dispensationalism, you lose that. Those become problem passages. And that's where they come up with these, like, you can lose your salvation ideas, Mm -hmm. you can fall away from God. Sure, like, nothing can pluck you from the hand of God, but you can choose to jump out of the hand of God. (laughs) Like, all these crazy ideas that are not biblical, that you were... Uh, you know, imposing your mm-hmm. ideas onto scripture, you're not gleaning what scripture is actually telling you. It comes from having to rectify these issues with of your theology with what scripture actually says. And because it's so different, you have to make something up or add something mm-hmm. to scripture to make sense of what you want scripture to say to you, yeah. though it's not. Hermeneutical gymnastics is what we call it. Yeah. Um. And real quick, before we move to the last one, it's also way more relational. When you understand that God has had this loving covenant from Genesis 3.15 until now fulfilled in his son to reconcile us and to be united with us through his son and to give us his spirit and to live in this redeemed life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All this kind of stuff. And it's through covenant that he doesn't break his promises. I mean, what hope that gives Mm -hmm. rather than dispensational theology where you're like, well, I'm just happy I was born in this time then, because had mm-hmm. I been born in another time, God would have just balled, balled that time up and tossed it in the trash too. Or, you know, what? like God is just a lot more fickle Yeah. in in that framework. You were just a cautionary And tale. we're not, and I mean, I'm really not just picking, <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm really not just picking like the better one, like, oh, that just sounds better. So I'm going to pick that one. 
I have been convinced more and more throughout the years, this is just the biblical language. Well, the more you study the Bible, the more you see the continuity between the Old Mm -hmm. Testament and the New Testament. And it's really hard to not see this thread that's woven throughout all of history. Yeah. Very last one. All right. The character of God. It does change how you see God and his character. Over the years of studying covenant theology, I've become increasingly more thankful for just the faithfulness of God. And throughout each one of these covenants, that's what you see Mm -hmm. is him being faithful to his people on and on throughout history. And we don't deserve it. I mean, we deserve wrath. We deserve his judgment and his anger. Yet in his mercy, he remains faithful. He gives us spiritual blessings that surpass our understanding. And so when you see that in covenant theology throughout all of time, I mean, it's just glorious and wonderful. Mm -hmm. Rather than this God whose plans get jacked up all the time and he has to reboot Mm -hmm. his frozen computer. Right. You know, which is how they view it. And this is just a for free. This is a freebie. But I think it does change how you view the atonement, too. Okay. How so? Because I think if you don't believe in the covenant of redemption and that Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works Mm -hmm. for us. And we'll talk about all this more in detail later on. Yeah. These are actually what we're going to go into in our um, next upcoming episodes, talking about more specifically the covenants of covenant theology. Mm-hmm. But if you don't see those properly, you could never fully understand the atonement of Christ. It's true. I think it robs you of so much richness. Yeah, that's good. So if you have any questions about even this episode, send us a message on Facebook, Rebel Alliance Media. You can also email us, contact us somehow, contact us somehow. And you can find us on our personal Facebooks too, if you'd rather. Yep, that's Grant fine. Grant Van Brimmer and Erica Van Brimmer. Send us a message. We would love to answer your questions, possibly do a Q&A episode at the end of the series. Because mm-hmm. maybe some things you want us to go deeper on. So Or explain, maybe we said something that yeah. was foolish. Yeah, we know eschatology and... Israel and the church. And, and there's a lot of big words that we use too. <laughs> yeah. So like when we talk about things like eschatology or ecclesiology or missiology or what the word hermeneutics you guys talking about? and like if you guys need uh, a little bit of clarification there. We would love yeah. to talk with you. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, we'd love to. So, so hit us up. Subscribe to the feed if you like the show so you get all the new episodes. Find Rebel- us on Insta, guys. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening and uh, tune in next week for the next episode in this series. Where we will be talking about the covenant of redemption. And if you don't know what that is, you're about to. You need to tune in. We pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened by the power of the Spirit. And until next time, get woke. Yeah. Let's start with the microphone check. One, two, first. Water to the dry and weary soul of the true church. The kind of things that few search. They say that the truth hurts. Well, this pain is gained, so let's explain the new birth. First things first, can't neglect this at the start. I must preface my remarks with the deadness of the heart. From original sin, the effects of the fall. The sin of our first parents brought death to us all. Since Adam was our federal head, what he did counted for us. In him were all rebels and dead. Yo, captured in the mind, disaster, sin and crimes in a Dark state, Alaska in the winter time, sour in our frames. Left to ourselves, we be devoured in the flames. Cause we're powerless to change. If you feel that way, I pray that you respond happily as you see what Jesus had to say in John chapter 3.